This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Are we heading towards another economic crisis? The stock market plunged last week. Private debt is at an all-time high. Speculative markets are on the rise. Wealth remains concentrated at the top. And workers are stuck in precarious, low-wage jobs. My guest today, William I. Robinson, says that the transnational capitalist class is facing a crisis of over-accumulation. Global capitalism is in deep crisis, and I, I uh, describe that crisis as over, an over-accumulation crisis, and that for me is capitalism Achilles heel, and we're seeing that at this point. The natural tendency for the capitalist system is to concentrate wealth in one pole and to polarize that wealth and throw the vast majority of people into impoverishment and immiseration. But what is to be done? Professor Robinson details the social movements that will be necessary to escape the rise of a global fascism. He sees the role of intellectuals as an important part of these broad social movements fighting for social justice. We have to ask a key question as academics and as intellectuals, and for who are we performing our intellectual labor? And that's always been the challenge that faces academics. Mass social movements and projects of political change and social justice need intellectuals. They need organic intellectuals. They need intellectuals that can provide theoretical tools and analysis to the mass social movements, which is where the hope of humanity lies. William I. Robinson is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He has written extensively on globalization, capitalism, and the transnational capitalist class. His latest opinion piece is entitled The Next Economic Crisis, Digital Capitalism and the Global Police State, which was published by Telesor, an alternative representation for world news. William Robinson, welcome to Fresh Ed. Well, hello to you and your listeners, and thank you for having me on. So you've written extensively about uh, the transnational capitalist class. How would you define this class of people? This is a class of people that's lost its mooring to any one class of capitalists that's lost its mooring to any one nation state. The 20th century, well, actually going back to the late 19th century, there were mass struggles, trade union struggles, worker struggles, um, anti-colonial struggles worldwide from the late 19th um, the late 19th century into the mid 20th century, which forced a redistribution of wealth uh, downward and increased the power of the popular classes worldwide. Uh, capitalists, virgin group of capitalists responded to that by going global from the 1970s and on in order, at least in my analysis, in order to break free of the constraints that the nation state and that working in popular classes inside the nation state were imposing on capital. And these, this group of capitalists became the what I call the hegemonic fraction of capital uh, worldwide. That is, the emerging transnational capitalist class um, it became, became hegemonic. There's still local capitalists, there are national capitalists, there are regional capitalists, but the one that's at the apex of the whole new global economy is this transnational capitalist class. And in a little more technical terms, I define the transnational capitalist class as that group of capitalists worldwide whose interests lie in the emerging globally integrated system of production um, and and finance or in global uh, markets and global circuits of accumulation in distinction to national or regional or even local markets and local circuits of uh, accumulation. One other thing I would add here is that what we've seen over the last 20, 30 years is an acceleration of neoliberalism, 
worldwide and free trade agreements worldwide. And that is the project of the transnational capitalist class to break down national and regional barriers to the free movement of their capital uh, around around the world. Could you give me some examples of the institutions or the people who would be part of this transnational capitalist class? Well, you know, I just um, just a couple days ago, I finished reading the draft of a book by Peter Phillips. Uh, he's a sociologist here in California, uh, titled "The Global Power Elite," and he assembled some incredible uh, data and alarming data and statistics. Uh, he and he documents he studied the tr- the apex, the top cream of the transnational capitalist class, and he identified and fully documents, and I'm going to quote from him now here, 389 individual people uh, who are the top ranks of the transnational capitalist class who amongst themselves control um, for, control $40 trillion uh, in wealth. This $40 trillion is concentrated in 17 global financial giants. That's what we see with the new uh, global uh, capitalist system that these giant financial conglomerates at the very heart of the uh, of the global economy and they are incredibly uh, invested amongst themselves. These seven uh, global financial giants are cross invested. So he describes that as a single vast network of uh, global capital. But the forty one trillion dollars that those less than 400 individuals control isn't the whole story because in turn these 17 global financial giants are invested in industry, in commerce, uh, in the media, in the military-industrial complex, and that involves tens of trillions of dollars more. So what we're seeing basically is the transnational capitalist class has an unbelievable concentration of the world's um, of the world's resources and the world's wealth. And so this this um, distribution of wealth downwards that was that was present before the 1970s when the the emergence of the transnational capitalist class as as you said earlier now are we seeing a a, a redistribution of wealth upwards that's what we've seen every single year every single day since the since the 1970s but let's expect let me go into some data but let me expand the analysis uh, a bit here uh global capitalism is in deep crisis and i i uh describe that crisis as over an overaccumulation crisis and that for me is capitalism Achilles heel, and we're seeing that at this point. The natural tendency for the capitalist system is to concentrate wealth in one pole and to polarize that wealth and throw the vast majority of people into impoverishment and immiseration. Now, that natural tendency for capitalism to accumulate wealth has been offset historically by a number of other um, counter tendencies, such as trade unions and working classes and popular classes struggling for a redistribution of wealth downward, such as states, governments intervening in the capitalist market to set up programs that would redistribute wealth downward. And that was the social welfare policies of the 20th century, offset that inherent tendency of capitalism to concentrate wealth. And when capital goes global in the 1970s, those counter tendencies, which broke down and redistributed wealth downward, were reversed. So everyone's familiar with the this data um, that 1% of humanity at this time in 2017 uh, controls more than 50% of the world's wealth. Then the top 20% of humanity has 
95% of the world's wealth. That means that 80% of humanity has only 5% of the world's wealth. We've never seen such incredible levels of inequality worldwide. And that is generating a, even though it's a bonanza for the transnational capitalist class, the transnational elite, and for privileged strata among the rest of the population, that is generating a deep crisis for the system. It's generating, leading to a breakdown of the system, and it's leading to social conflict and political crises as, as well, those levels of inequality. But let me get back to that structural level that I mentioned earlier, this, um, what I call overaccumulation crisis. What that means is that if I'm a capitalist, and let's say I'm producing um, computers, iPads or iPhones, whatever it is for the global market. If 80% of humanity has less and less purchasing power, and that the purchasing power is concentrated among 20, and by the way, increasingly among 15, 12% of the world's population, because that polarization is still deepening and continuing. That means that at some point, I can't sell those computers. In other words, I can't unload all of this wealth that pours out of the global economy. And so that's what's meant by an overaccumulation crisis, that, that, that wealth is so concentrated at the top, and all of this wealth wealth being produced cannot be unloaded. That's the term we use in political economy. It cannot be unloaded, and that leads to crisis. That is the crisis, in, in, in my analysis, in 2008, was the explosion of a new global crisis of overaccumulation. And that's still continuing. And I'd like to point out how the transnational capitalist class has responded to this crisis of overaccumulation. How have they been able to continue making profits, to accumulate their, their uh, capital in the face of uh, worldwide demand that is just not there in the face of overaccumulation, well, I've identified uh, three different key mechanisms, and many listeners will be familiar with this. One is debt-driven uh, demand. So we have a situation where, to give you the example of the United States, and this is very important because the United States is historically what we call the market of last resort, meaning that all the countries in the world can eventually unload their goods and find markets in the United States. So in the United States, consumer debt in 2017 surpassed $13 trillion. That's the highest level in recorded history of consumer debt in the United States. And just yesterday, uh, I discovered a new statistic, and that is that one trillion of that is credit card debt, which is now in default. So that shows you the crisis tendency and that debt-driven consumer uh, uh, consumption cannot be uh, continued. Um, and it's not just in the United States. Last year, a report came out that for the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development Countries, that's the 22 uh, most developed countries in the world, the ratio of household income to debt continues to deteriorate, and it's at an historic high, meaning that debt in those 22 richest countries, uh, debt-driven consumption is also uh, reaching a ceiling, maxing out. Uh, and I will add another uh, piece of data that a hundred trillion, there's a hundred, tr the global bond market is a hundred trillion dollars. The bond market, that's government bond market, meaning the governments can't pay their bills, so they issue bonds. And that's already hundred trillion dollars. There's now the risk of global uh, default on the in the in the bond market, the government government's uh, government debt. So basically, this debt-driven consumption, which has pushed forward the global economy in the 21st century, is bottoming out. It cannot continue. The and the transnational capitalist class then continues to face the crisis of where to unload the surplus, how to continue accumulating, and its second um, mechanism has been financial speculation. And again, I'm sure that your listeners have heard about this, but these figures are absolutely shocking. And so, w gross world product in 2000. 
16 was $75 trillion. That means all of the goods and services produced in the world amounted to the equivalent of $75 trillion. Yet in that same year, just in currency speculation, the figure was $5.3 trillion every day. And listen to this, the global derivatives market, and derivatives are by definition financial speculation. It's not producing any new wealth. It's simply speculating on existing wealth. The global derivatives market reached $1.2 quadrillion. So listen to that again. $75 trillion is the global production of goods and services. $1.2 quadrillion is just speculation, just in derivatives. That's what we call this, the gap between the, the real world economy and fictitious capital, speculative capital, is, is reaching such mind-boggling levels that it cannot continue to fuel the growth of the world economy and to stave off this accumulation crisis or another major economic crisis worldwide. The final mechanism that the transnational capitalist class has used to push forward its accumulation, its profit-making profit in the face of stagnation and overaccumulation, is what I call militarized accumulation and accumulation by repression. And what this means is, what I mean by this is that um, you now have the transnational capitalist class seeking wars and seeing, seeking conflicts and seeking to escalate systems of social control and repression, such as building a wall between the U.S. and Mexico and a war on immigrants, the so-called and farcical war on terror, the, so the farcical war on drugs. All of this now becomes uh, opportunities to make profit in the face of, un of the lack of other ways to make profit uh, in the civilian economy. And so it should be no wonder that to give you an example, the Pentagon budget increased 91%. That's almost a duplication from 1998 to 2011. And once again, I mean, it has continued to increase since then. And under Trump, it's sharply escalating right now. Uh, the United States just announced that it's going to spend $1 trillion to expand its, um, to uh, modernize and expand its nuclear arsenal. And this is all over the world. All over the world, there's escalating military spending, which is a reflection of what I'm referring to as what I call militarized uh, accumulation and accumulation by repression. So, so these are the different, this is the ways in which the global, the global crisis is unfolding and which the transnational capitalist class has managed to somehow keep moving forward in the face of this crisis. Do you think it will actually, like this crisis and these, these three different elements of this crisis, will ever impact the transnational capitalist class at, to such an extent that there would be a redistribution of wealth in downwards in the other direction? Like, it could, could it ever actually impact them to a point where we'll see some structural changes going on mm -hmm. in the global economy? Mm-hmm. Yes, really good question, and two things going on. One is that these levels of unbelievable inequality is, of course, generating mass resistance struggles all over the world. Some of those re uh, resist responses uh, are not necessarily progressive, such as Christian fundamentalism or Islamic fundamentalism, but they need to be seen as responses to the crisis of humanity, the crisis of masses of people. But a lot of that resistance worldwide is progressive. There's mass social movements everywhere. There's a, a regeneration of the left worldwide. There's also, of course, a regeneration of neo-fascist and far-right authoritarian responses to the crisis. But going back to the issue of redistribution, first of all, there's pressures worldwide and mounting, mounting struggles around redistribution. And secondly, and very interestingly and very importantly, the transnational elite is split. 
there is an emerging reformist sector among the transnational elite, and that includes transnational capitalists, that recognize that these levels of inequality and these structural problems in global capitalism is generating an intractable crisis for the system. And so they are actually pushing for a reform of the system in which there's a redistribution of wealth downwards. We can call that a global, the pushing for a global Keynesianism. I, many of you reading this will be familiar with Keynesianism. Those are the sets of policies associated with the redistributive programs and the social welfare programs of the 20th century. And so, I mean, my hope, at least on this, is on the one hand, there will be more and more transnational uh, coordination and coherence in this global fight back against well, against the transnational capitalist class and also against these levels of inequality, but that we have the possibility here for an alliance or what I call a united front against what's an emerging um, far-right authoritarianism and really a, a global neo-fascism against a global police state. But that part of this united front, which brings together reformist elements among the elite with these this mass rebellion from below, um, uh, part of that that project, that the United Front, will be seeking global redistribution. I think that's really our our, our hope here. So in America, where you're based, uh, and a lot of the figures you've been talking about um, are coming from, I mean, the last few years, ever since the global financial crisis, um, you know, since then, there's been unemployment has been going down. And I mean, I know today of all days, the stock market has crashed tremendously. Um, but, you know, the stock market, as Trump will over and over and over say that it has been increasing since he's been elected and there's been economic growth. So, I mean, in a sense, is this the calm before the storm, you know, that Hyman Minsky might talk about? Well, absolutely, yes. And let me get back to the calm before the storm in just a moment. But let me also say that, of course, what nothing, anything that comes out of Washington is, is prop propaganda. But if you look behind those propaganda and those, and those headlines, it's true that unemployment and then there's un unreported unemployment and then there's underemployment. So if you add up um, official unemployment, which is, I think, 4.7% right now with unreported unemployment and then with underemployment, you have a much higher figure. But putting that aside... We an, we can we can and we have analyzed the jobs that are created um, is, that have been created since 2008, and for that matter, since the turn of the century. And these are precarious, low-paying jobs. They're mic jobs, if uh, if you will. And increasingly, work is becoming the, the polarized actually between a de-skilled mass of work and automation and robotization and so forth, and a small sector of the workforce which is actually skilled and highly paid. That's of course reflected in the data we already saw: the 80, 20. 80%, 20% divide of uh, of the population. So even if unemployment is uh, going down, the types of jobs being created are not jobs that can sustain global capitalism, much less sustain decent uh, living standards for the, for the majority of the working population. But let me go back to the uh, other issue of the calm before the storm, because we analyze in political economy uh, that there are three types of crisis under capitalism. One type is cyclical. That's what mainstream economists call the business cycle. And about every 10 years, there's a recession, almost with clockwork. There was one in the early 1970s, or that was a deeper crisis, early 1980s, early 1990s, the turn of the century to 2000, 2001. And then 2008, of course, was the big, the second type of crisis that we see, which happens more rarely, once every 35 to 50 years. That's what we call not cyclical, but a structural crisis. And it's called a structural crisis because the only way to get out of it is to fundamentally restructure the the way capitalism is working. 
So we had a giant structural crisis in the 1930s that led to social welfare capitalism and Keynesian New Deal capitalism. Then we had the next giant structural crisis was the 1970s, and that led to capitalist globalization, which we have been analyzing. When capital went global and restructured the system through neoliberalism and free trade and a globally integrated production and financial system and so forth. Then 2008 for me is the next big structural crisis. And we're still in that structural crisis. The third type of crisis that we analyze is systemic. And what that means is really the only way to get out of the crisis is to move beyond the system itself, to uh, transcend the system. And I believe that we're moving towards a systemic crisis for reasons which I'm sure there's not enough time to get into now, but because of the impossibility of capitalism to reproduce itself ecologically. Uh, and because of what we call a crisis of social reproduction, meaning the mass of the world's population has no really chance of sustaining its own existence. But, okay, putting aside that, the calm before the storm, um, absolutely. Let us recall 2006, well into the beginning of 2007. The mainstream economists and the political pundits and government officials were saying everything's fantastic, the economy's never been better. In fact, they were even saying capitalism has overcome its crisis tendencies. The business crisis cycle is even over. Remember what they said that into early 2007. And then the collapse began in mid 2007 with the mortgage crisis. So we're absolutely in the calm before the storm. Having said that, though, I don't want to trap myself in a corner by saying the storm will come in six months or one year or in what form the storm will come. But as I've already analyzed, the structural conditions that led to the collapse of 2008 are not only still in place, but they have deepened. I've already, we've already analyzed that speculation has deepened, that credit uh, debt-driven consumption has deepened, that militarized accumulation has deepened, that inequality and therefore overaccumulation constraints have deepened since 2008. So really, as a social scientist, there's really no way to imagine that we don't have a storm coming up. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, one of the fascinating things that I've looked at is the student debt, the rise of student debt. And when you look at the numbers from the Fed, you realize that student debt really started rising only in about 2012. Absolutely. Yes. But what you have with student debt is also what's going on with student debt. Well, that's part of debt driven consumption. It's also part of intensified um privatization and commodification of everything. So increasingly, here in the United States at least, uh, higher education, and it's actually quite, probably quite distinct in, 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 um, in, it is distinct in Europe and it is distinct in Japan and elsewhere, but in the United States, which is the national economy, part of the globalized economy that we're most analyzing here, um, the uh, higher education is more and more and more uh, privatized. And when, when it becomes privatized, public higher education, such as my university, the University of California, that means that increasingly it's tuition which finances public education, meaning students finance their own education and they do so through massive increases in their debt. So that's a part of that story, and that's a part of the story of uh, the debt-driven economy, but it's also financial speculation. And look what happened with the mortgage crisis. What the banks did with those is bundle together millions of different mortgages and then sell them as derivatives, as speculation, and basically securitize them, turn them into an investment. Anyone in the world could buy um, shares in bundled up millions of mortgages, and then the whole thing collapsed. Now what the banks are doing with that student debt, and by the way, the, the debt is owed to banks, so just a little bit of it is owed to the government. Uh, they're simply government-backed, meaning taxpayers are backing students going into debt and back have the banks back. But 
going back, what the banks are now doing is bundling that student debt. So it's a new bubble. Student debt is a massive new bubble, and that could burst. In fact, it will burst because there's no possible way that the generation which will, which is now graduating, graduated in the last few years, and will be graduating in the next few years in these conditions of crisis and inequality and uh, low-paying jobs are going to be able to pay back that student debt. Uh, I pointed out already that right now there's an emerging crisis of credit card defaults. But joined with that are going to be, I predict this, a massive student debt default. I absolutely agree. I mean, the student loan asset-backed securities is, is an excellent indicator of uh, a bubble that will burst just like the, the mortgage crisis back in 2008. Um you know, I mean, it's interesting. So there's all this, uh, the pressure of workers being unable to reproduce themselves through all sorts of, you know, by basically reproducing themselves themselves through debt currently in many cases. Uh, and once that debt goes into default, then workers simply can't uh, reproduce themselves. They can't get jobs because jobs are precarious now. It's the gig economy. Um, and so as you were saying, you were talking a little bit about the transnational capitalist class. Uh, there's, there's actually a split within that class of elites. Uh, and there's, there's two different camps. You know, what, what would you say is like, which camp do you think is going to win out? And what will that actually mean for the global economy? Really great question. But let's just analyze a bit those two camps. And of course, that's simplified, but it's a good way of looking at this. On the one hand, we're increasingly living in a global police state, and we're increasingly seeing that the far, the rise of a uh, far-right authoritarian project. A lot of people have called that right-wing populism, but I don't see it as that. I see that it's this aggressive, this one of these camps of transnational capitalist classes, aggressively taking its power and imposing unbelievable levels of accumulation, even though it's pushing the, uh, the whole global economy and the whole global system into crisis and into mass uh, uprisings. And in order to do that, it needs to impose a global police state expressed through these right-wing populist projects. We can analyze that and I can delve into that in, in just a moment. But I want to turn to this other project coming out of the transnational capitalist class. And you see this more, for instance, with the Davos elite. Um, and look at some of these people uh, well-known intellectual figures who were the intellectual thinkers of the neoliberal project previously. So you have just Je uh, Jeffrey Sachs. He's um, top IMF official, top World Bank official. He went around the world both to Russia and Bolivia and imposed structural adjustment programs and neoliberalism. You have uh, Joseph Stiglitz. Uh, famously, he was the uh, vice president of the World Bank and advocated and pushed neoliberalism in the 1990s. You even have uh, Lawrence Summers. Lawrence Summers was the uh, Secretary of the Treasurer in the United States. He was a Vice President of the World Bank. It's a key figure associated with neoliberalism in its heyday of the 1990s. These and many other of these figures of the, the intellectual figures of the transnational elite are now all against neoliberalism, all against the current course of capitalist globalization, globalization, and are all arguing for what I call, they don't use this language, a global Keynesianism, basically a project of uh, redistribution downward. Now, they're doing so not by advocating a socialist project, but on the contrary, advocating something like what you had in the um, developed countries in the 20th century, social welfare programs, um, higher taxes on capital, and we've gone in the opposite direction on that, of course, but that's because uh, of the really in control is the transnet the 
uh, corporate transnational capitalist class. But you see this these two projects uh, at play in countries around the world and at play in international uh, forums. So I think which is going to win out really doesn't not depends less on them. It depends on the extent to which masses of people, social movements from below, uh, political and social struggles from below are going to force on the um, transnational elite the only option possible, which is a reformist project. The alternative to that, if we don't succeed in doing that, that is if those from below, the mass mass of humanity from below, doesn't force on the transnational elite a reformist project, a redistributive project in alliance or in, 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 in alignment with this uh, reformist project from above, the alternative is, for me, a uh, global fascism, uh, 21st century fascism grounded in a global police state. And so what is the role of academics in this struggle, as you're talking about, if we can't make sure that we at least move in that social welfare direction? Well, we have to ask a key question as academics and as intellectuals, and for who are we performing our intellectual labor. And that's always been the challenge that faces academics. Mass social movements and projects of political change and social justice need intellectuals. They need organic intellectuals. They need intellectuals that can provide theoretical tools and analysis to the mass social movements, which is where the hope of humanity lies. And this has historically been a the um, challenge that intellectuals face. Do you sell yourself do you become an intellectual mercenary and sell yourself to the powers that be, in this case, to the transnational capitalist class, the global corporate order and its political agents? Or do you uh, use your uh, skills and your talents and your as intellectuals uh, in the service of the poor majority of humanity? So that hasn't changed. But actually, what we've seen, this is a really important question, because we saw in the mass struggles of the 1960s and the 1970s that many intellectuals aligned themselves with the mass social movements, the anti-colonial struggles the, here in the United States, the Black and Chicano liberation struggles, the trade union movement, which reached a peak in the 1960s and early 1970s. And then we saw uh, with, we can call it in simplified firm, form, the worldwide defeat of the left, but really what was going on there again is that capital went global, changed the balance of social and class forces worldwide, went on the offensive, and imposed the new global capitalist system that we've been analyzing. And so in the face of that change in the whole balance of political and social forces worldwide, many intellectuals simply sold out. They simply retreated into their uh, academic ivory tower or they increasingly just turn towards supplying the intellectual inputs for the global capitalist order. So we're back to that again, um, you know, with, with regard to what is the role of, uh, of intellectuals and in academics. But I want to point out something here, and, and it's also, of course, that as academics, we are more and more dependent for our own research, for our own uh, social reproduction on corporate capital. Here at the University of California, if you go back three, four, five decades, on the one hand, as I was mentioning previously, uh, you didn't have student debt and tuition-driven public education, but you had almost free public education, University of California, and you had state-financed public uh, education. But if we go back then, we also see that academics got their research money, sure, from corporations, but most of it didn't come from corporations. Well, they came from foundations, they came from, from public financing of research. Now, the vast majority of funding for research, for that matter, for chairs, for, for hirings, and so forth, uh, that vast majority of that funding uh, comes from the corporate world. So corporations here in the University of California virtually bought physics departments, 
and then the research goes to corporations using that research for their own ends. Uh, they've bought chemistry departments for the pharmaceutical industry and biology departments for new bio corporate biotechnology. Uh, so, you know, increasingly, it's very difficult to be an academic or an intellectual and to not be subordinate to the transnational um, capitalist class. And that goes for the social sciences uh, as well. Is there any, I mean, within that sort of contradiction, is there any way in which you see individual academics able to, say, be funded by transnational capitalist corporations, uh, but still working for some of these social movements, revolutions uh, that you were talking about earlier? Well, yes. I mean, you get funding and your funding's not cut off on what you do on the side, to put it like that, on the side. But the thing is that the foundations, which themselves are financed by corporations, are the gatekeepers for this research. So they'll fund the type of research they want to see, and they will not fund the type of research they don't want to see. So I could get funding to maybe I could put together some meaningful proposal. This is just, you know, in the abstract, just hypothetically, for to uh, research the global economy with a view towards how you can enhance profits or enhance um some you know something that's not threatening to the system, but I'm not going to get funding if I say I want to research global police state and how it can be combated, or I want to research uh, accumulation by by repression. So at the individual level, I can go out and do what I want with social movements, but I'm not going to be able to play my role as a as an academic as a researcher, and that's something else as well. There's other methods of academic repression, and you don't get hired. The increasingly, if you're an intellectual or an academic identified not with the hegemonic order, but with any counter-hegemonic order, you don't get hired. And if you get hired, you don't get tenure. I mean, that's not new, but there was a lot more autonomy. It was easier to have much more autonomy previously uh, in academia than, than there is now. And one other thing as well, I'll add, that increasingly, and this is worldwide, but particularly in the United States, courses are taught by adjunct faculty. So we have a transition in which there's a small uh, faculty which has full-time jobs, which are tenured, and eventually you'll get stability if you don't, if you manage to, uh, which would be 15, 20, 25 percent of the of the faculty, and then the remainder is adjunct faculty, which are people that get a PhD and they have that student debt we were talking about previously, and they get paid per course a small amount here in in California, six or seven thousand dollars for a course. So you teach, imagine you teach six courses a year at a semester system, which is full time, and you get seven times six, thirty, thirty five thousand dollars a year. That's poverty wages for a family. I mean, below poverty wages. Uh, so that's also the new face of academia. And that, again, is makes it very challenging to play the role of an organic intellectual for transformative projects. Not that we shouldn't, but that these are the obstacles that, that, uh, that we face. Are you hopeful that these systems will be changing soon? Like, is this something that you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a relatively young academic, and I, what you just described is exactly what I face. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, do I stay in academia and try and get to that promised land of a tenure-track job, or should I just bail and look for something else to do? Right. Well, I mean, I think this means that academics, and particularly young academics such as yourself, need to identify 
with the mass social movements that all across the economy, all across global society are facing this precariatization. You know, we talk of the new precariat, which is that group of the working class which lives under precarious conditions, uh, flexibilization, um, part-time and temporary labor, and of course, precarious employment is exactly what adjunct professors um, face. So, I mean, think your generation facing these conditions needs to identify with all the rest of the global working class and the global precariat. Um, no, don't ab abandon your dreams. We need academics. We need intellectuals. Um, but somehow we need to link. Um, and it's not really possible to remain ensconced in the ivory tower for your generation. And we need to think link these the struggles. That's also a larger issue that this leads to. Link how you link the struggles on campus and student struggles and academic struggles with struggles in the larger community and society. Well, William Robinson, thank you so much for joining Freshhead. It really was a pleasure to talk today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. William I. Robinson is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Please note that opinions expressed on Freshhead are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.